I think the last four years have really shown us in the world that no democracy is immune from the threat of authoritarianism, that the U.S. is really no exception on that front. I think it's it's too early to say whether what happens in Mr. Trump's case changes that. I think a lot of people have kind of given up on the U.S. with the beacon of justice at this point. This is actually the trend of the world. And it's looked like there is no place for reform in this world. Today, we're talking to a lawyer fighting for ethics in the U.S., a journalist in Sudan, and a cartoonist in Malaysia who isn't afraid of taking on his government with the swipe of his pen. And what we're talking about is the rule of law and what happens if a head of state doesn't follow the law. What does that mean for the people? I think it is fair to say that we do stand on a precipice in terms of the rule of law in our country. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. In the United States, the Justice Department has a policy that the president, any president, is immune from prosecution. The idea is that prosecuting the president would impermissibly interfere with a president's ability to lead the government. That's Connor Shaw. And I'm senior counsel at CRU, which is Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. We are a nonpartisan ethics watchdog. And Connor says the United States has followed that precedent of not indicting a president so far. This is another area of law that is not really set in stone. No court has ever really decided whether a president has immunity while in office. However, once a president leaves office, that policy no longer applies. And mired in a legal milieu, current U.S. President Donald Trump is facing an election, which means he may be voted out of office. And in theory, those cases could be brought. The way it works in the U.S. is pretty similar to how immunity works for heads of state in a lot of places around the world. While they're in office, they can't be prosecuted. But once they become the former head of state, they can be prosecuted, convicted, even imprisoned. Because the U.S. election is less than two months away, we're going to start with Connor in Washington, D.C. I work on public education efforts regarding executive branch accountability. You didn't say it very excitedly, but it actually sounds like pretty juicy stuff. Do you like what you do? (laughs) I love what I do. It's a really critical time for these issues in our country. We're facing an, an unprecedented assault in the rule of law, and a lot of the institutions and laws that make our government work are under assault right now. So what we're doing, I think, is a really important part of sustaining our democracy. So let's dive right into what lots of people have been talking about, President Trump's transgressions. Do you think it's fair to say that some of the many cases that he is uh, facing are transgressions? I think that's a very fair word. He's engaged in a staggering and unprecedented amount of conduct that is plausibly criminal. And that ranges from campaign finance violations from the last campaign in 2016. New developments today involving allegations that the Trump campaign paid this porn star hush money. Did this break campaign finance laws? Payments that his attorney, Michael Cohen, made to 
women who claim they had affairs with Trump. And that case involves the name Stormy Daniels, which a lot of people have now heard. That's right. Does Stormy Daniels have the president's number? It sure seems that way. He and his attorney, Michael Cohen, paid a couple of women for their silence. Her name is Karen McDougal. Karen McDougal had a sexual relationship with Donald Trump for 10 months. Regarding affairs that they claimed they had with President Trump. The way the women were paid was the problem. The way that they did it skirted campaign finance laws that require candidates to disclose campaign-related expenses and contributions. Trump's campaign ahead of the election had denied the candidate had any knowledge of payments to the model Karen McDougal. Have you sat down with the president to talk about Stormy Daniels? As we've addressed a number of times, the president has denied these allegations. And then President Trump failed to disclose that he basically owed his attorney, Michael Cohen, money that Cohen had paid to those women for their silence. Cohen said then-candidate Trump directed him to make hush payments to two women during the campaign. And then there's the Mueller investigation. The U.S. government's investigation of Russian interference in the 2016 election. And the Trump campaign's involvement. Those instances involve several times in which the president sought to impede or curtail the scope of the investigation or potentially even fire individuals who are leading that investigation. Okay, so far the cases against Trump include campaign finance law violations involving allegations of paying off porn stars, interfering with the Mueller investigation, including firing the head of the FBI, James Comey. Then there are the Trump associates who have already been charged and convicted. The aforementioned Michael Cohen, retired Army Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, an advisor, George Nader, a campaign advisor, George Papadopoulos, Rick Gates, also on Trump's campaign, Paul Manafort, Trump's campaign manager, Steve Bannon, who worked on Trump's campaign and in the White House, and Roger Stone. Trump eventually commuted Stone's sentence. I was just handed this. President Trump has called Roger Stone and told him that he will commute his sentence. Then there are potential crimes associated with Trump's attempts to get Ukraine to investigate the current Democratic nominee, Joe Biden. Trump's 2020 election rival. Political strings may have indeed been attached to the president's call with Ukraine and revealing an American effort to nudge Ukraine into investigating Trump rival Joe Biden. Basically withholding money that was promised to Ukraine to get that country to investigate Biden. That includes... Things like misappropriating U.S. taxpayer dollars, and that's unlawful. There are also potential campaign finance violations because getting foreign entities or individuals to participate or spend money in U.S. elections is also a federal crime. Then there are state investigations, which could potentially cause more trouble for a former President Trump. Namely... New York State investigation of President Trump and the Trump Organization for bank and insurance fraud. That investigation relates more to the president's business dealings. The state New York charges will in some ways be the hardest for him to block because the president has no ability to influence state proceedings in the United States. 
So which of those cases should the president be most worried about? He can't pardon himself for state crimes. A U.S. president with the ability to pardon themselves. I'm I'm sure people listening to this are probably thinking, what? What is that? What's the potential for that? In the U.S. Constitution, the president has the power to pardon individuals for federal offenses. And that includes prospective pardons. So you can be pardoned for a crime that you have not yet been indicted for or accused of. The idea of a self-pardon is not one that has ever really been talked about seriously before, in part because no president has really faced, again, this unprecedented list of potential offenses. So there are some reasons to think that courts would be very skeptical of it. It's not clear which direction any of these cases will go with or without a presidential pardon. But one interesting fact No U.S. president, current or former, impeached or not impeached, has been indicted. That's right. I mean, it's important to note a few things. First, the vast majority of presidents don't actually engage in potentially criminal conduct. and That is a very important note. Yeah, maybe something we've lost sight of in the last few years. (laughs) And even with presidents who have faced impeachment proceedings, Nixon's probably the best case to talk about in this context because he was actually facing a criminal investigation when he resigned. President Nixon very likely would have faced indictment if he had not been pardoned by his successor, Gerald Ford. Gerald Ford had been his vice president, so of course was in the same party. Right, exactly. After an election, if there is a change of power, some of these questions may lead to different... There may be different results because... Things like pardons and criminal prosecutions might go in a different direction. So that's the United States. And we'll get back to Connor in a few minutes. Before that, we thought it would be interesting to talk to journalists in countries who are prosecuting their former heads of state, like Malaysia. A Malaysian court finds former Prime Minister Najib Razak guilty of abuse of power related to the 1MDB scandal. Six more charges are being read out. When first I heard the news, when the court passed the judgment, Najib was sentenced. I am very, very happy. Just a few months ago, in July, a Malaysian court found Najib Razak, the former prime minister, guilty of abusing power, breaching trust, and laundering money. Money that was supposed to belong to Malaysians. Zunar is a political cartoonist in Malaysia. My name is Zunar. I've been drawing cartoons for 30 to 40 years in my country. Some of those cartoons have gotten him in trouble with the Malaysian government. He was charged in 2015 with sedition for a series of tweets. But he says he's fighting corruption, and he believes Najib is guilty of that and several other crimes. This is related to what we call, what the DOJ, Department of Justice of U.S., calls the biggest money laundering in the world. In 2016, the U.S. Justice Department called it the biggest kleptocracy case they'd investigated. It involves billions of dollars that stretched worldwide, hence the U.S. involvement. And it's associated with the Malaysian Development Fund, 1MDB. The stated purpose of the fund was to develop the country, help Malaysia's poor. Now, 1MDB has a different association. 1MDB scandal One Malaysian development scandal. Billions of dollars stolen from Malaysia's sovereign wealth fund 
1MDB. At least six countries have ordered investigations into 1MDB. The scandal over the government's 1MDB investment fund that had hundreds of millions of dollars allegedly misappropriated. Money was taken from Malaysia and was laundered outside. In my, my language, it was stolen from Malaysian pocket and it was used for personal gains of certain individuals, including Najib, his wife, Rosma, and of course, his advisor, Jolo. Famous for lavish parties, private jets, and a $250 million super yacht, Jolo allegedly laundered more than $1 billion of 1MDB money. Jolo was also known for partying with Leonardo DiCaprio and Paris Hilton. So that's the outline. The whole story is very clearly detailed in the U.S. Department of Justice investigation. Suffice to say, according to the DOJ, the money meant to help Malaysia and Malaysians was traced to hotels, dozens of Birkin bags, a mega yacht, a Picasso painting, and the seemingly fantastical film of financial fraud, The Wolf of Wall Street. My name is Jordan Belfort. The year I turned 26, I made $49 million, which really pissed me off because it was three shy of a million a week. When the Malaysian people got word of this, they weren't happy. There were protests, and in 2018, Najib Razak was voted out of power. As news began to sink in about what was happening at election counts around the country, so the crowd in this park has swelled, the mood turning to one of euphoria. Once Najib was out of office with dozens of charges against him, in July, Malaysia's fight for justice against corruption seemed to come to a head, with Najib found guilty and sentenced to 12 years in prison. But it didn't take long for Zunar to start wondering if that sentence would ever be served. When Najib was sentenced, the instruction must be given to send him straight away to the prison. That is justice. But that's not what happened, Zunar explained. The court allowed him to appeal. In Malaysia, the court of appeal is where the government have control. So I think this is not a good sign from the court and from the government of Malaysia. If they really want to punish him for the crime, for the corruption he did, they need to actually send him straight to jail. But it's not like that. In Malaysia, some say justice is handed out unevenly. Not long ago, a deputy prime minister, Anwar Ibrahim, was arrested, convicted, and spent 11 years in prison, completely separate from 1MDB. Many Malaysians blame his last stint in prison on his political rival, former Prime Minister Najib. Those who have a power is my target because I really go after anybody's corruption. And because corruption is rampant in Malaysia, corruption is like a part of Malaysian culture, I can say that sarcastically. The important for me to pick the biggest corruption, MDB case is the biggest one, we have to go to the biggest one. And as Zunar sees it, what's happening with Najib is far from over. Some people say early next year or maybe a middle of next year. We are going to have another general election. And this is where we choose the prime minister again. And if Najib is not in prison... He might be a prime minister again. He might run again. And if Najib become prime minister again, the first he will do to go against his political enemy, 
So not strengthen the country, but you go for political political enemy first. So it's become a re- politic of revenge. Malaysia doesn't have a principle of rule of law. This means it is all about how you use the law against your opponent rather than the law. There is no prime minister in Malaysia ever said, I want to fight corruption. I want to strengthen the institution. I want to free all these institutions from my influence. And they can arrest me if I corrupt. There's no prime minister ever say that. We need someone who really have a willpower to fight corruption. And when Zunar thinks about a U.S. president being tried, being convicted, going to jail, it doesn't make him happy either. If finally we see someone, head of state of the U.S., go to jail, what will come in my mind that, ah, Malaysians are not alone. This is actually the trend of the world. Uh, Very, very bad trend. And it looks like there is no place for reform in this world. Before we give up entirely, we wanted to catch up with one of the friends of the pod here at The Take, Hiba Morgan in Sudan. I'm Hiba Morgan, um, working with Al Jazeera English, covering South Sudan and Sudan, mostly in Sudan these days. We're talking to Hiba because Sudan's former president of three decades is also facing justice. He's on trial for the 1989 coup that brought him into power. But Omar al-Bashir was facing calls for justice while he was in power, too. Arrest warrants were issued against him in 2009 and 2010 for work crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide in Darfur. That's the western region in Sudan. You may remember Darfur. The war started in 2003 when ethnic tribes accused the Sudanese government of marginalization. It started with a small rebellion by people demanding the government give them better representation, governance. And the Sudanese government, with Omar al-Bashir as president, responded. Villages were burned, completely wiped out. It was called scorched earth policy because as per survivors, government forces would come and just burn the villages and force people into displacement camps or across the borders into refugee camps. It got the attention of the international community. And the International Criminal Court started trying to understand what was happening. They started investigating. So in 2009, they concluded that the president of the country and who was the commander-in-chief is the one who's responsible. We're talking about, you know, women being raped, children being killed, men as well. But for the people of Sudan, who were watching government news on TV, none of this seemed real. For a lot of people, what happened in Darfur was just, you know, the West inflating things that are happening. For them, it was just, oh, it's all a hoax. And for Bashir... He he was nervous. The first thing he did was he kicked out international organizations saying that they were spies and accused them of being the ones collecting what he said was false information to get him indicted by the ICC. And while downplaying the legitimacy of the International Criminal Court, Bashir was about to start taking them pretty seriously. He went to South Africa... I think it was in 2015, and the court there was debating whether they should arrest him because there's an arrest warrant against him. He left the country without arrest. Before the judge then could issue a decision 
on whether he should be arrested. Now, most of the African leaders and other leaders thought that the ICC was being unfair. Most of the ICC indictments and arrest warrants have been issued against Africans. And Africans are the only sitting heads of state issued warrants as well. One against Bashir and the other against Uhuru Kenyatta of Kenya. For more than a decade, Bashir, as president, managed to escape the law. He would delegate his ministers, he would delegate his aides. He would basically avoid any chance of being arrested. The last few weeks of his presidency, he would fly either on the plane of the country that he is going to or by countries that have guaranteed that they would not arrest him. And he wasn't letting go of the office easily. Remember, he was in power for 30 years. He was able to use that power as president, as a head of state, with resources under his control, with a population under his control, more or less. Then in 2019, it wasn't the International Criminal Court. Something else got him instead. Bread shortages and high inflation had the people of Sudan protesting in the streets, day after day, week after week. And in April of 2019... Hundreds of thousands of people marched to the streets, to the army headquarters, and set up a sit-in there. And days later, national security agents fired their weapons at the protesters. They didn't go away. And when the military saw that these protesters were very determined, they ousted their, until then, commander-in-chief. The former head of the regime has been removed. Omar al-Bashir was no longer president of Sudan. And the first announcement that came was that he is under arrest and there were lawsuits that were opened against him for corruption. A transitional government was formed and a special investigation committee was set up. And the charges got harsher, as did the potential penalties. He's also being tried for the 1989 coup that brought him to power. But for a coup, what you face is the death penalty. Things escalated quickly. And this was exactly what Bashir had worried about while he was the head of state. There were plans to amend the constitution so that he can run for any number of times that he wanted. If he steps down, then that immunity as president, as head of state, disappears. It, It was the issue of, I need to stay in power so that I don't get prosecuted. Sudan's new government has cleared the way for Bashir to end up at the International Criminal Court. But Bashir's trial in Sudan that carries the death penalty is still happening too. And the Sudanese are divided. There's a split in in public opinion on whether the transitional government should just hand him over or whether he should be tried at home with help from the ICC, but it should be a Sudanese thing because that would mean reforming the judicial system. People in Sudan are also waiting to see if their demands are actually met. Because again, they understand that judicial reforms um, happen slowly, but they also want to make sure that there are concrete steps. They want equality. They want to make sure that there's no difference between one person and another, and and that anybody who has wronged a, a Sudanese civilian once upon a time pays the price for it. That no one is above the law, and that there is the rule of law. And what are Sudanese thinking about what's happening in the United States? I wouldn't say Sudanese are looking at the U.S. and thinking, oh, um, you know, we've been there, done that. But they're looking at them thinking, you've got a system in place. Now we want you to use it because the only reason why we're not doing this is we don't have such a system in place. Otherwise, we would have used it. But does the U.S. still have that system in place 
Right now, the country has also come under an active investigation by the ICC that goes back to the Bush administration's policies during the war in Afghanistan. The Trump administration has chosen to respond by sanctioning members of the International Criminal Court and blocking their entry into the United States. So, in the United States, the question lingers, is there an exception to the rule of law? We asked Connor back in Washington, D.C. I think when we are talking about the rule of law, we're talking about the idea that nobody is above the law, that nobody can expect to avoid consequences for violating the laws. So how important is it in the context of the United States? Any social compact, uh, any constitution, any set of laws depends on citizens' trust and expectation that if they follow the rules, other people are going to follow the rules. And when you see public officials break rules and face no consequences, that can lead to a breakdown of the entire system. And that's what we, when we talk about losing the rule of law or the rule of law falling apart, it's, it's really that. It's, it's public faith in the system as a whole breaking down because they no longer believe that the rules that they have agreed to are binding. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters with Dina Kispe, Oni Wohacha, Alexandra Locke, Priyanka Tilve, Ney Alvarez, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is the sound designer. Natalia Aldana is the engagement producer. Stacey Samuel is The Take's executive producer. And Graylin Brashear is Al Jazeera's head of audio. Special thanks to Marianne Jolly with Al Jazeera's 101 East for her help on this story. We'll be back.